Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. Hey, good morning, New City. I have been told that I'm a much better barbecue cook than a preacher, so we'll see how that goes. Um, but uh, this is the first time outside of a wedding that I've had an opportunity to speak to live people in about five months, so uh, we may be here a while. So I want to welcome everybody that's uh, joining us at home, but I'm, I'm so thankful that you were able to come out this morning. Um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 27. If you have a Bible, you want to pull that out. Um, that's going to be where we are. We'll have uh, some of the, the, the scriptures on the screen. Um, let me start with this. Uh, several years ago, I had watched a, an HBO miniseries, The Pacific. Uh, it was a, a follow-up miniseries similar to Band of Brothers. Some of you may have seen it. Um, and it uh, surrounded uh, World War II. Uh, the Pacific specifically was about the Pacific theater uh, during World War II. It followed the Allied soldiers, primarily um, the, uh, the U.S. soldiers. And uh, I remember as I watched this series... One of the fascinating parts was uh, how they depicted the Japanese army. Uh, every time U.S. soldiers would come into an area, and they, it, it just would show this army that would come at them. And the one thing that I, I, would, I would finish up each episode, and I would be tired. I'd be exhausted. And I'm just watching television. I can imagine uh, what it would be like to actually be in, in a... a a situation like this, but, but I, was, I was watching this, and I was tired, and I kept thinking, it's, it's like these people are relentless. It's like this army was relentless. They just would never stop, and that word relentless is where we're going to hang out for a little bit today. The word relentless, it means oppressively constant, persistent, continual, nonstop. Let me say that again. Oppressively constant, persistent, continual, Nonstop. I feel like I just described this year, right? I mean, essentially 2020. Um, for many of us, this has been a relentless year. And to be honest, as a pastor, I talk to so many who say that 2020 might be a more intense version of what they've experienced in the previous few years. I've talked to so many people who have experienced just a relentless season. And they wonder, is this season going to end? Anybody been there? Okay, so I, some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, and when we experience hardship and suffering, these are when the questions come out. Even, even those of us who have faith, we have these questions like, God, why is this happening? Why is this happening? When is this thing going to end? God, where are you in all this? If you, if you read the Psalms, you have lots of Psalms where David is, is praying to God and he's, he's in such a good place and he's so happy and he, he's just exalting the Lord. And then there are other Psalms that you read and they're just Psalms like, it's like a, a call in the middle of the night from somebody who just broke up with you, you know, and they're just upset, you know. This is, the, David's crying out, God, why? Why is this happening? It's relentless. And what seems to make this year harder for me, and I think many others, and maybe some of you, is that you come to a community, you're coming into a gathering today in which you have to stay separate from the gathering. 
You're having to sit in every other seat. You have to watch online at home. And this, this significant means of grace, this robust community, and I've heard so much about this community here at New City, we have a harder and harder time remembering the promises of God. So um, David Brooks, a, a columnist for the New York Times, I have this on a slide, uh, wrote this a few years ago. Um, he says this, we live in a culture awash in talk about happiness. In one three-month period last year, more than a thousand books were released on Amazon on that subject. But notice this phenomenon. When people remember the past, they don't talk about happiness. It's often the ordeals that seem most significant. People shoot for happiness, but feel formed through suffering. We think about it. The places in your life that are most significant when you talk about the most growth, it is not the easiest times. When you look back and you will talk about 2020, it will be some significant things that might happen in your life, but it will be because of the difficulty. Our text today is in the last part of the book of Acts, um, where we see, uh, we, we see the, the, the rise and, and the beginning of the church, the filling of the church by the Holy Spirit. We see in Acts... Uh, the, the conversion of Paul and how Paul is now on these missionary journeys, planting churches and going through all sorts of hardships, um, multiple instances of suffering in the life of Paul, one bad thing after another happening to him. In Acts chapter 21, um, we see that Paul is arrested and the rest of the book of Acts is Paul dealing with the ordeal or the relentless ordeal of trial after trial, having to explain himself, having to go through different situations where he's beaten, a series of defenses before the courts. Eventually, he appeals to Caesar in Rome because he doesn't think he can get a fair trial anywhere in the region of Judea. And so in Acts chapter 27, Paul is then placed on a ship and he's headed off to Rome. Now he's even telling the people, wait a minute, bad time of year to be on a ship. Storms could come up, but they go anyway. And in Acts 27, verse 14, uh, it says this, But before long, a fierce wind called the Northeaster, if you're from New England, the Nor'easter, you don't pronounce the T-H, rushed from the island since the ship was caught and unable to head into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. So this storm, this nor'easter, was basically a hurricane that lasted, if you, you see in the text, it lasted for about 14 days. Can you imagine being in the middle? When we felt bad for the islands. Uh, was it last year when they just, they sat for like five days with a storm sitting over them? And, and we, we, we can imagine then, relentless. It is just never ending. People that were trapped in those things and wondering, is this storm ever going to pass over? Can you imagine being in it for 14 days, two straight weeks? It is relentless, and you're gonna, we're going to die. There's no doubt. See, this is what happens in, in verse 20. This is a, a, what happens when you're in a relentless storm. For many days, neither sun nor stars appeared, and the severe storm kept raging. And here's where it is. 14 days, here's where it is. Finally, all hope was fading that we would be saved. You know what happens when you're in, in the middle of storms? Every day that the storm is with you, every day this happens, you, you, there's this thing about hope. It just starts to fade a little. Hope begins to fade. This storm, which was a major part of Paul's suffering, suffering can represent for us all, and I've already alluded to it, all of our suffering. I mean, in any suffering you go through, you go, this is a storm in life. We're just going through a storm. 
Every bit of suffering that we go through this life can be called a storm. It's a great metaphor, especially when we talk about how the storms in our life sometimes are relentless. And it seems like they have no real purpose. See, that's a tough thing. Not only is it relentless, but sometimes we under, when we ask the question why, we just really can't see why. But the text tells us that there's something behind it. There's some kind of purpose behind the storm. That God is sovereign even in the relentlessness of the suffering. In verse 22, um, Paul, uh, the scripture says this, Now I urge you um, to take courage. So Paul's saying this to the people in the ship. He says, because there will be no loss of any of your lives, but only of the ship. For last night, an angel of the God I belong to and serve stood by me and said, don't be afraid, Paul. It's necessary for you to appear before Caesar. And indeed, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. So take courage, men, because I believe God that it will be just the way it was told to me. All right, so there's a prophecy. He says, God told me that we're all going to be rescued from this. We're all going to be saved. Ship's going to be destroyed. We're going to be okay. So Paul is telling the men in the middle of their fear that God is sovereign. He has spoken. No one will die. Well, that's encouraging. Except when we get to verse 31, I don't have this one on the screen, but we're told at one point some sailors were still scared. And it says they attempted to escape from the ship, let down a lifeboat. Paul goes to them and says, what are you doing? And he turned around, he told the centurion, the captain of the guards, he said, unless these men stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. Wait a second. Didn't didn't Paul just say that God told us that no one's going to be lost? But then he goes in and says, your responsibility in this is you got to stay on the ship. You you, you still got to steer the ship. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboats and let it drift away. So Paul says, in one sense, it's absolutely certain God has spoken, God has planned that no one is going to die. Yet when he sees the sailors leaving, he says, unless these guys stay in the boat, we cannot be saved. See, in our minds, we're either or people. Either God is sovereign and in control, or I am. Either God is sovereign and in control, and, and therefore, my choices don't matter. Or, we believe that what we do matters and our choices have consequences, and then God is somehow limiting himself and holding back, and he's not really in control at all. We're either or people, but Paul seemed to be both and. We hope you're inspired by God's word. What have you learned so far? As you listen, pray about applying it to your life. Let's continue in God's word. In other words, Paul's assuming that on the one hand, every single thing that happens, small things and bad things included, is determined by God, and yet our choices matter. We're responsible for them. They have consequences. And this is a bigger theology thing that we can get into. But for now, we're just going to spin in this because I want to show you how this is actually not Paul's idea, but this plays out in all of Scripture. The book of Hebrews was written to a group of people who had suffered a great deal in a lifetime of storms. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, the writer says this, endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? For dis- a no discipline, verse 11, seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, there are two ideas that are supported in Scripture about suffering or storms and God. They complement each other. They're not opposed to one another. There's the perspective 
One that says that evil and suffering in this world, it exists and God hates it. He didn't create evil and suffering in the world. If you look at Genesis 1 and 2, it shows us the world that God created. Genesis 3 shows us that we have brought evil and suffering in the world. The rest of the Bible is about how God is going to incredible lengths to end evil and suffering in the world. And so in Hebrews 12, this word discipline... And when we hear the word discipline, a lot of us uh, maybe had, had bad experiences with discipline. We heard something that was called discipline, but actually was abuse, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about ki- kinds of discipline, true discipline, in order to train, in order to guide, in order to build. This word discipline is actually a Greek word, pedia, from which we get the word pediatrics. So a pediatrician is concerned for the overall health and flourishing of a child. But if you take my daughter to the doctor and she sees a needle, what is she doing? She's screaming. She's convinced that that man is out to kill her. She knows, she's convinced, there is no good rational reason in her mind why this person would come at her with this pointy object. And we tell her, no, he loves you and we do too. Liar. God has a purpose and design in the storms. God is ultimate and sovereign. God is not a passive passive observer in our lives when the storms of evil come to beat us up. God is sovereign over evil. God is not coming to his children late after the attack and saying, I'll see how I can fix this. That's not discipline, that's repair. But if he disciplines those he loves, then what is the purpose John Newton says, everything is necessary that he sins, and that nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Now, listen, I know that in the middle of the season, and maybe your specific season in life, it's hard to hear this because we don't want these things. But if you remember, there's an example, if you, if you know the story in the Bible, the most, probably the most vivid story of how this plays out is in the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. If you remember the story, Joseph is a favorite uh, of his father out of a bunch of brothers who were jealous of him. And if you kind of read the story and pay attention, Joseph isn't very likable. He kind of rubs it in the nose of his brothers that he's a favorite. His brothers are tired of it, and they find Joseph in a remote place one day. Nobody is around. Nobody can see what they're going to do, and they sell him into slavery in Egypt. Terrible thing. He goes into slavery in Egypt. He works hard, but it doesn't matter because there was someone who falsely accuses him, and he's thrown in prison. Another terrible thing. Joseph has one bad thing after another bad thing after another bad thing, and he's praying. He's in a cistern calling out, um, and he's wondering why God is doing this. He's praying, and God doesn't seem to hear him at all. Bad thing after bad thing after bad thing. Maybe we could call this thing a storm. It just keeps going day in and day out. Everything is wrong in his life, but if you know the story... It's only because that he's sold into slavery and even only because he's put in the dungeon and he meets the people he meets and does the things he needs to do in order to ascend and he becomes one of the most powerful people in Egypt. And he put together, during a famine, a hunger relief program. And this hunger relief program reached out to the known world and guess who ended up showing up at his doorstep? His brothers. In the end, it's only because of all these things that happen to him that people are saved from starvation, especially his family. 
Joseph, Joseph himself becomes a person of greatness and, and escapes this future he has as the spoiled person, and he heals everybody else, and he heals the relationship with him and his family because he was in the position to do so. In other words, if all the bad things hadn't happened, the really good thing wouldn't have happened. At the very end of the story, do you remember what Joseph said to his brothers? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Like God is not a passive observer here, but God meant for good. Tim Keller put it this way. There is a brokenness outside of you, disease, conflicts, racism, war, injustice, need, poverty, and there's brokenness inside of you. There's foolishness in me, pride in me, selfishness, cowardice, a lack of self-knowledge, all sorts of things in me. And God brings external brokenness into connection with your internal brokenness at exactly the right time, in exactly the right place, and in exactly the right proportion to move you from blindness to self-knowledge, from cowardice to courage, from selfishness to generosity. I wish I could come up with great things like that to say. This is why we quote guys like Tim Keller. See, this is the part of the Christian view of suffering. Most of the time, there are two ways we deal with suffering. Some people regard suffering lightly, say things like, I'm not going to let this get to me. You ever said that? This too shall pass. I'm going to keep my head up and just keep going. Some people are really weary. No good could possibly come out of this. There can't be any good. There must not be a God because there's no way I can see a reason. It, because I can't see a reason, there must not be a reason. My daughter says the same thing at the doctor. But Keller goes on to say, hey, hey, brace yourself for this one. This, this, one, this one hurts. Despair is an act of arrogance. Despair is an act of arrogance. The only way we can be in despair is if you are absolutely sure that since you can't see any reason, any way, anything good can come out of this, there must not be any. Despair is for omniscient people because you would have to be omniscient to lose all hope. Now, listen, I'm much more compassionate to Tim Keller. I probably wouldn't say that to you. But the idea that when I, when I read, read this and just, just personal reflection, and I thought about the times that I get into despair and I start to spiral and my wife comes to me and reminds me of the gospel and she goes, you know, how you're feeling right now is really not true. When you have spiraled to the point that you can't see anything clearly, she said, it's not true. She reminds me of the truth of the gospel. And that was helpful for me, so I wanted to pass that along. Um, in, in the film, um, came out several years ago, Slumdog Millionaire, won eight Academy Awards in 2009 and gained a lot of acclaim. But this story's poverty, uh, violence, crime, child exploitation. It was the backdrop for this beautiful story between this young man, Jamal, a young man from the slums of Mumbai, India, and his unwavering love for this girl, Latika, a beautiful girl he met in the same slum. Jamal and Latika were separated for a lot of years. And after they had seen each other briefly, she was taken away again. And yet he never stops trying to find her. And against impossible odds in the last scene of the film, Jamal and Latika finally reunite. And he pulls back this long yellow scarf wrapped around her face and he sees uh, this disfigure, her face, she has this, um, this scar that disfigures her, and she looks down in shame, and Jamal, his eyes with tears, he, he, he looks over, he pulls her close, and he kisses her scar. Remember this? Kisses her scar, not first her lips, he kisses her scar. 
It's like the scar itself is at last redeemed and made beautiful. And this power of the story lies in the depth of their love, forged in the context of all these years of injustice and evil and suffering and separation. And this moment could not have happened without the story's disturbing setting. He couldn't have kissed the scar if there were no scar. If you're a Christian, your scars, your storms actually can reveal the power of the gospel. I want to get to the good news. Because all of this, when I say God is sovereign, it's comforting to some of you, but to some of you, you struggle with that idea of God being sovereign over these things. For some of us, the, the ideas, if I'm giving these, these uh, quotes like this Keller quote, I know that can be disturbing about despair, dis, uh, despair. But let me give you the good news in the gospel. Because when we question God's love in the storms, we actually, the one thing we have to look at is the cross of Jesus. Even though the cross cannot tell you what every storm is about, the cross can tell you what the reason isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he doesn't care. The cross of Jesus is the centerpiece of the gospel, the bad news of the gospel, and the good news of the gospel. The bad news is this. Our sin separates us from God. Our sin puts us on a collision course for ultimate destruction away from the, pre- of the presence of God eternally. The ultimate storm. There is nothing that we can do to reverse our course from this ultimate storm. There's nothing we can do. That's bad news. And on the cross, Jesus Christ didn't just experience physical suffering, though he experienced intense physical suffering. But he was also experiencing that ultimate, cosmic, absolute, utter, infinite storm on our behalf. On the cross, Jesus Christ experienced this storm for us. Everything that we deserve was put on Jesus. Our sin, our shame, our guilt, our punishment, so that when we trust him, when we receive him, we can receive everything that he deserves. Forgiveness, the love, the the smile of God, but primarily the full loving presence of God, the reversal of the storm for us. He was the end of the storm, the ultimate storm. He loves us that much and he hates suffering that much that he was willing to come and be plunged into our ultimate storm and experience it so that someday he would end all evil without ending us. Because Jesus went into the ultimate storm for you, the only storm that would really consume you, you can be sure if he went into the ultimate storm, you can be sure that he's walking with you in your storm now. He didn't forget about you in 2020. And if you want to know How do I know this? Look at the cross. It was infinitely worse for him than it is for us now. And when we remember this, it's actually something that can bring us out of despair. It's actually something that can reveal where the despair is. It can reveal the things that we were looking to as functional saviors looking to as functional maybe idols that we were looking to to save us and those things have been taken away recently. What do we have left? We have the gospel. We have the cross. And when we we remember these things, we don't lose hope, even when the storm is relentless. And when you give you Paul's perspective, he wasn't stronger than you. He gets to the end end of his life and he says, I'm the worst of these guys. I'm the worst of sinners. I'm the most forgetful of them all. But in Romans 8, 18 and uh, verse 28, 
remember, he's going through all sorts of things, and then he says this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed in us. In verse 28, he says, we know that all things work together for good, of those, uh, for, for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And then in his second uh, letter to the Corinthians, he says this. This is bold, right? Think about all the times that Paul was beaten and shipwrecked. This, we read one shipwreck. He was shipwrecked three times. I mean, talk about relentless. I, I, I feel like I'd just stop getting on boats if that kept happening. In verse 17 of, of 2 Corinthians 4, he says, <laughs> this is nuts. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. When he compares it to the cross and looks at it, he goes, momentary light affliction. It's almost condescending, isn't it? It's almost like he dismisses pain. But when he looked at his own pain in light of the the gospel, the bad news and good news, he said, this light momentary affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. The gospel's better than our storms. In light of the gospel, Paul calls his suffering, his personal storms, even the bad ones, light momentary afflictions. And he says, the purpose is that they are working for us, producing for us an eternal weight of glory. To, to modify a quote I heard from uh, Tabidi Anubile, I can't say that name, uh, um, he, he says this, the next time suffering enters your room, he says, I want you to look at it and say, welcome. Welcome. Produce for me the glory that God intends. That's bold. But, but I think we can only do it in power of the gospel. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.